You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. So good to see you all. Thank you again for those of you who prayed and gave for the group who went to London. So many stories to tell. Hope we have opportunity to share some of those things in the days ahead. And of course, our partnership, the International Mission Board that takes us all around the world and same this week. So uh, Foothills Church Partners have had the experience of, of, of sharing and being a part of people in Muslim background cultures uh, this week. And then next week, another team will be going to Hindu background uh, folks in India. And so just continue to pray. There's a lot of great things going on, and I really hope we get to, to share that soon. We begin a new series called Count on Me. And as Brant said earlier, we're always asking, who can we count on? And as our church begins to go into the fall, and this series will take us to the fall, because by the time we do all five weeks, it's going to be in August, and school will be started, and we'll be back in our rhythm uh, of the fall. And and we think about what's going to happen this fall, moving into a new building. And every one of us that have been here for a while, those of you who have served and been engaged uh, the church has felt a certain way. There's a, there's a certain rhythm that has happened for you. And, and just moving into a new building is going to change some of that rhythm. It's going to feel different. It might even feel like a different church. But the vision, the mission does not change. And so as we walk through this, some of you became partners years ago, months ago, and you said, hey, you can count on me. But as we come into this new season of uh, our church's history, we want to come back and revisit that question of, can you count on me? What does it mean to be a partner at Foothills Church? And how do I join and to be a member of what we call a partner? And so we're going to look over these next five weeks of, of what partnership looks like. And, and maybe there was a day when you signed up and you said, yeah, you can count on me. I'm going to attend. I'm going to get in a small group. I'm going to give financially. Uh, I'm going to serve in a ministry. You can count on me. I'm a partner. I'm in. And maybe some of those things have just not happened the way you had hoped they would happen when you originally made that commitment. So at the end of these five weeks, we're going to have a kind of a re-up and a recommitment for those who are partners and certainly give an opportunity for those who are not to be a part of the vision and mission that God has given Foothills Church to make disciples all over the world and certainly in relational environments here in our community. Count on me. As we look at this, though, I want to talk about a question I get a lot. Is church membership even biblical. As a matter of fact, there's nowhere in Scripture that the Bible says in the New Testament, hey, you need to be a member of a church or you need to join. So a lot of people question, well, is this even important? Is it necessary? Is it a commitment? And I want to look at five different passages real quick in this introduction to help us understand the question, is it biblical to partner? Is it biblical to be a member or to join? First of all, There are five incidences, and there are many more. We only have time for a few, but there's this thing called church discipline. The church is to discipline its members. So is it biblical to partner? Church membership is implied by the way the church is supposed to discipline its members. In Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. 
between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So set him outside of that. So if there's no church membership, who's going to oversee this very sensitive and weighty matter of church discipline and helping to hold our people accountable? Now, it's very difficult to do church discipline in our culture today. In the New Testament days, there was one church in town. There was the church at Philippi, the church at Corinth, the church at Galatia. And in the context of that church, if you were held accountable or you were stepped, asked to be removed from that fellowship, there weren't other churches to go to. We've got hundreds of churches around us, and typically, if we in the least bit try to hold somebody accountable, they just go to another church. And so the idea of church discipline, while extremely important, it's also difficult, but certainly points to the fact that church membership is a, is a necessary part of the body of Christ. And then sometimes that church discipline moves to number two, excommunication exists. That's an ugly word. We don't like to talk about that word, but it's the removal of someone from the church fellowship. Church membership is implied because sometimes this church discipline ends with excommunication. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is dealing with the church at Corinth. There's a man that moved in with a woman that was not his wife. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 1 and 2, a man is living with someone who is not his wife. Let him be removed from among you. This man was a regular, consistent part of the church fellowship. But when he did this, Paul says he needs to be removed. And he goes on to say, I don't judge people outside the church. This is not an an outside the church issue. I want to deal with and hold accountable and judge those who are inside the church. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So such a formal removal would not be possible if there was no such thing as clear church membership. And then thirdly, Christians are required to submit to their leaders. Church membership, again, is implied because of the biblical requirement of Christians to be submitted to a group of church leaders, elders, or pastors. So the point is here that without membership, there would be no specific group of leaders to submit to. So there must be some expressed willingness or covenant or agreement slash membership that has to precede a person's ability to submit to a group of leaders. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So our elders and our leaders in this place will give an account for how they care and shepherd the people of this congregation, the people of this flock, which leads to our next point. Number four, shepherds are required to care for their specific flock. So again, church membership is implied in the way the New Testament requires elders to care for the flock that's in their charge. Acts 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Elders knew who they were to care for. They knew who their flock was. They knew who they were supposed to shepherd over. Again, in this day, there's one church in the city. 
So you were a part of that, and you were, uh, there, there's this uh, expectation that you're a member of that. And then number five, the, meta- the metaphor of the body. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 12, talks about we are a member of the body, and just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And that word for member there is is, uh, referring to a member of a body, like a hand, a foot, a finger, an ear, an eye, talking about the imagery behind the word member is being of one body. So these five references and many, many more just have a clear implication and expectation that all followers of Jesus should be in a body. They are part of a flock with leaders who are shepherding and caring over them. And we're supposed to help hold one another accountable and deal with the issues that we have in the context of holy and godly living. All of that said, yes, It's very biblical and many, many other accounts that we become part of a church family and that we are part of a specific body of Christ. We're meant to join. We're meant to become members. We're meant to become, our word is partners. So what is a partner? What is a partner? In the simplest form and using this sermon series, a partner is someone we can count on. Someone who says, hey, Count on me. Foothills Church, you can count on me. Many of you have been on teams, whether they're sports teams or other teams. You're in your family. Uh, There's always those people in your family who you can count on, and there are always people in your family that you cannot count on. Amen? Can I get a witness? There's always somebody in the family dynamic that carries the family load. When there's a problem, they call them. Now, they never call them to ask how they're doing. They just call them when there's a need. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Well, anyway. Partner is someone you can count on. But what happens in our life and our journey when you can't count on us? What if we failed? What if we said, hey, you can count on me. Hey, I'm gonna partner. Hey, I'm your guy, I'm your girl. You can count on me, and we fail. We made promises that we did not keep. We tried to cash checks that we wrote that just did not have sufficient funds. You couldn't count on us. Jesus is dealing with this in a man named Simon Peter, a man who made outlandish statements. You can count on me, Jesus. No matter what happens, everybody else leaves. You can count on me. Jesus says, I can't count on you. A matter of fact, in John chapter 13, if you want to turn there, it's the night of the Lord's Supper. Jesus is talking about, I've got to go, I'm going away, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer on a cross, and he's closing out the end of this communion time, this Lord's Supper with with his disciples, and he says in verse 36, I'm going away, and Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow me but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? And here's the statement. 
I will lay down my life for you. Jesus, you can count on me. And Jesus, I don't know if he chuckled or cried, but said, will you really lay down your life for me? Before morning, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to disown that you even know me three times. Peter is trying to tell Jesus, I'll die for you. If everybody else leaves you, I will leave you. He's made these statements before. And yet before the rooster crowed, Peter denied that he knew Jesus three times. In the midst of that moment, Jesus' eyes and Peter's eyes connect. And the, the horror and the terror and the fear and the hurt and the betrayal and the pain and everything Peter must have felt, condemnation and guilt and shame. You, can you imagine catching Jesus' eyes just as you said, I don't even know him, and what Peter must have felt in that moment? Not only can you not count on me, Jesus, but I can't even pretend that I know you. And Peter's in a bad place. And this leads to number two. We know we're supposed to be part of something that we can count on, a, a membership, a fellowship, a body. But sometimes we become people that you cannot count on. Sometimes we become people that made promises that we just didn't keep. What do we do? What does Jesus do with us? Peter's in an extremely bad place. It's difficult to be exposed to someone that you can't count on. It's difficult to make promises that you do not keep, and everyone knows now that you didn't keep it. But let's fast forward to John chapter 21, verse 9. And we'll see what Jesus does with us who come from a place that made promises that we did not keep. Maybe in your original commitment to Foothills Church or to Jesus, there, there were all these hopes and expectations. And, and I'm really going to move. I'm really going to deepen my faith. I'm really going to give it all. I'm going to change my priorities. But now months later or years later, it's just not happened the way that you hoped that it would. It was certainly true of Peter. Someone who said he would die for Jesus and never leave him has now denied that he knew him and has left. And now he's gone back to what he knows to do, fishing. It seems like when we mess up and fail and get disconnected from God, we just go back to what we know, what's common, what's easy, we go back to the old ways, we go back to the old patterns, we go back to the old habits. It's just what we know. So Peter, after all of this debacle and all of this pain and Jesus' death and all that's gone on, he goes back to fishing. One night they fish all night, they don't catch anything, and as they're getting closer to the shore, a man on shore yells, did you catch anything? No, we haven't caught anything. He says, put your nets down again. They put their nets down, and they could not carry all the fish that went in their net. Over 150 fish were filling that net, big fish, not little ones, big ones. And as soon as they pulled that up, Peter knew that the man on shore 
was Jesus. He jumps out of the boat, swims to shore, comes up on shore, and here's the story. Verse 9, chapter 21 of the Gospel of John. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now, you may wonder, what in the world does this have to do with anything? To me, this is the key to the whole story. You're like, what? This is the key. This verse for me is the key. He comes on shore. Why does John write, and there were burning coals, and Jesus was cooking fish and bread on it? Why didn't you say Jesus is cooking some food and they're going to have breakfast? Why so specific? I'm one of those people that believes that every word in the Bible means something. Burning coals. This is the Greek word that is anthracian, and it's, it's, a, it's a word. You say, well, what's it got to do with anything? Turn back to John 18, 18, just a couple chapters. The last time Peter smelled this smell, it was on a cold early morning Thursday night, Friday morning, 18, verse 18. And it was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a charcoal fire. It's the same Greek word. No matter what English phrase you have, it's the same Greek word, anthracian, that made, they made to keep warm. Fast forward, John chapter 21, verse 9. Peter's coming ashore to a charcoal fire. This is everything. The medical community tells us that the sense of smell is the most powerful, one of the most powerful of our five senses. But specifically, the sense of smell is connected to our memory as much as anything. So it's why when you smell something, you can remember someone. You ever smell a perfume and think of your mom or your grandma or something, you know, that smell, that smell. Oh, I remember that smell. And it connects you with a memory or an experience or a person. Uh, Sometimes smells aren't good, and we don't like those, but they still connect us to a person. My grandfather smoked a pipe, and every time I smell cherry pipe tobacco burning, I think of my papa. He's been dead for over 30 years, but when I smell that, my first thought is, Papa's here. And I look around, and that moment before cognitive thought, I'm looking for him. And I realize it's just the smell. Smell connects us to memories like nothing else. The last time Peter smelled a charcoal fire, He was warming his hands, and he was denying that he knew Jesus. And every time he thinks about and smells charcoal fire for the rest of his life, he's going to remember the night that he denied his Lord and Savior. His best friend, his companion, the lover of his soul, he thought, the man he had promised so much to. But every time he smelled that smell, every time he smelled charcoal burning, which would have been common in this day, no propane gas, 
he would remember the day that he failed Jesus. So what does Jesus do with us who failed, who couldn't be counted on, who made landish and outlandish statements and promises but could not keep them? What does he do? How does he bring us back? Jesus is so intricate and specific in the details of your restoration and my restoration and healing and restoring and redeeming every last uh, speck of that whole experience that even the connection with what we smell— Jesus wants to redeem it. So as Jesus is beginning to restore and redeem and forgive Peter and bring him back to his calling of following him and making fishers of men, Jesus is going to redeem even the smell of that painful experience because he loves us so much. Now when Peter smells charcoal fire in the future, he's not going to think of his failure and his utter lack of commitment and his inability to be counted on and his failure and his condemnation and his guilt and his shame and his mistake. He's going to think when he smells charcoal fire in the future about God's love and redemption and forgiveness and encouragement and salvation and mercy and grace. And I think only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus could reach back into our memories, the painful memories, and take every sight and sound and smell in that experience and radically transform it so that when I think about it in the future, I see it now as a trophy of God's grace, not of the enemy's destruction and death. Even down to the very sense of of smell. He doesn't want our experiences to be something that defeats us. He wants them to be crowns of victories and trophies of his grace and periods of being overcomers. Restoration allows this. It allows those failures, mistakes, hurts, habits, and hangups and tragedies to become trophies of his grace, victories of his grace, overcoming Everything that bring, brought us pain. That's what Jesus does for us who have experienced moments where hurt, failure, or times where we couldn't be counted on happens. I praise God for that. I thank Jesus for loving us that specifically and that intentionally. This weekend, we're having something here at the church it's called Making Peace with Your Past in Grief Recovery. They're saying that this, this feeling of loss and this, this, this sense of loss that people are experiencing in our society is hindering their ability to truly move forward in their relationship with Jesus. And loss comes in so many areas that people don't think any big deal about. And we really don't know how to grieve those losses. And when I read the list of all of the losses that when you move, uh, if, you're, if you've been divorced, uh, if you have empty nests and some of your children have left. I mean, my wife and I were looking at the list and we're going, oh my goodness, we're five out of seven. And if I wasn't in India, I would be there at this weekend and I'm going to go through it later. 
But if you've experienced some loss, some, some memory, some experience back here that seems to be laying unresolved, maybe there's a smell or a touch or a sight or a sound in that experience that just hasn't been wrapped up in God's grace yet, I just want to encourage you to come. If you're a Foothills partner, we're going to pay 50% of your cost. It's $99, and we're going to pay half of that. But you can go online and look at this. It, it's going to be, a, I think it's going to be something really special for any person who's experienced some area of loss, and there's just, there's just a gamut of things, not just the loss of life, but so many other areas of loss. Why? Because Jesus wants to restore everything. Everything. He doesn't want to leave one bit of your pain, one bit of your experiences that... Are, guilt, shame, condemnation. He wants to restore that. Now, every time Peter smells a charcoal fire in the future, he's going to connect it to the day that Jesus loved him unconditionally and welcomed him back into his fellowship. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. If you're experiencing guilt, shame, condemnation, beat up, nagging thoughts, I want you to know that all of those things come from the enemy. They do not come from Jesus Christ. Don't listen to them. Don't believe them. Jesus wants to restore even those who couldn't be counted on. And then lastly, how do we transition from that then to being people? Who can be counted on. I believe it's really simple, although very difficult to execute. Number three, it is love for Jesus that makes us people to be counted on. It's love for Jesus. It's love for anyone or anything that makes us people to be counted on. You love Jesus, you love the kingdom, you love his church, you love ministry, you love serving. It's in that love, that passionate, committed love that we follow as people to be counted on. Jesus comes up in chapter 21, verse 15. Now Jesus is going to engage him after the aroma of charcoal fire fills his nostrils and connects those memories in his brain. Now Jesus begins to talk to Simon Peter. And if you remember, Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter, the rock. But Peter the rock had not been acting like a rock, so Jesus comes to him, and he calls him by his flesh name, Simon. Don't you hate that? I mean, you, you got some memory. It's kind of like we don't really like our families, once we kind of grow up, to hang out with, because they always remind you of what? What you did when you were young. And they call you that name. My family, I have a nickname, and I hate it. I don't want them to call me that. But we get together and they go, hey, I'm not going to tell you what it is because I don't want you to call me that. No, 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 I'm not doing it. And I'm like, I'm not that. I'm not 10 anymore. I've got a sister. I'm 52 years old. She's 50. There's hardly a gathering week to get together when she doesn't say, you remember when you threw my stuffed animal in the fireplace and burned it up? 
I was 10. I'm sorry. Can we move on? A mouse killer is what you are. You're a mouse killer. Because it was a little mouse. It was a little stuffed mouse. Jesus comes to Simon Peter. He doesn't call him Peter the Rock. He calls him Simon. That had to hurt a little. That has to sting a little. Hey, Simon. Then he says this question. This is a This is a weird question in front of all the guys. Hey, Simon, do you love me more than all these guys? Oh, gosh, why are you asking in front of everybody like that? I mean, what if I said something to you? Hey, Travis, are you the best Foothills Church partner we've ever had? Go ahead and stand up and let us know. Gosh, I don't want to answer that question in front of everybody. But Jesus put, right, do you love me more than all these other guys? Why did Jesus do that? Everything Jesus does is so specific and intentional from smell and senses to everything. Everything is so specific. Because you see, Peter made outlandish statements all of his life. If everyone leaves you, I'll never leave you. I'll never let you die. I'll die for you. I'll go anywhere you want to go. I'll go where you want me to go. He constantly made these outlandish statements, and he even said some of them in front of the other disciples. I love you more. I'll never leave you. If all these guys leave, I won't leave. He just constantly made these outlandish statements where his brain got ahead or his mouth got ahead of his brain. His passion got ahead of his wisdom. His emotions got out in front of his ability to just think and respond appropriately. If everyone leaves you, I'll never leave you, but Peter did. Trusting in his own abilities and his own strength, and now Jesus comes to this man who is Simon, who continually let his emotions go ahead of him, continually run ahead of God, continue to live in his own strength. And so he asked this question to know, had Peter been humbled? Are the days of these sweeping outlandish statements, are they over? Would he make real commitments now instead of word commitments? Would he stop saying he loved the Lord Jesus so much and then, or then just deny that he even knew him? Would he stop trusting in his own strength and start surrendering to the Lord's strength? Would he run back to fishing if things got tough again? Or has he become someone that you can count on? Someone you can count on. Well, again, the kicker in this statement is really about some Greek words. The Greeks had four words for love. We we have one word for love. I love ice cream, and I love my wife. I love pizza, and I love my wife. And you go, well, they're not the same words. Right? They're not the same. I hope they're not the same. I hope you don't say, no, I really love pizza. I, uh, it's like the country song that says, my wife and my dog left and I miss him. Uh, sorry. The, the Greeks had four words for the word love. 
Agape is God's love. It's the most purest form of love. It's moral love. It's perfect love. It's God's sacrificial giving love. It's the amazing love, unselfish love. It's God's love, the highest form of love, agape. But then they had a word phileo or phileo. It's it's brotherly love. It's where we get our city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo is, a, is sort of a brotherly, buddy, kind of like you, love. Storge is a family love. I love my family. Eros is a sensual, sexual love. Erotic comes from that, obviously. But we only have one word. And we're trying to say, I love ice cream, pizza, our pet, our wives, our children, all under the same word. But in this passage... Peter and Jesus are having a very different conversation. They're not using the same Greek word for love. I'm going to read it to you just as it is written in the Greek. Are you ready? John chapter 21, verse 15. They finished eating and Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly agape me? Agape love me more than these. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Whoa, that's not what I ask you. I ask you if you agape me. Do you love me with the highest form of love that ever existed on the human planet? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I Phileo you. I have a brotherly love for you. Kindred spirit. Like hanging out with you. You're my guy. I'm in. I care. We're connected. Jesus doesn't respond except this. Feed my lambs. Then he says to him a second time. Simon, son of John, do you truly agape me? And Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Again, do you agape me? You know I phileo you. Then he says, feed my sheep. And then the third time it happens. Jesus comes to Peter again, and Peter was hurt because he asked him a third time. But the third time in verse 17, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Jesus changes his word. And Peter responds. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you phileo me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. Now, this is, this, is, <laughs> this is so deep what it's happening here. And, and let me just give you a couple things that just jump out of this. First of all, Peter had learned he was humbled. The outlandish statements are gone. Peter has learned the lesson of making outlandish commitments and promises, and that's a good thing. No more, I promise, I promise. Sure, count on me, count on me, count on me. And not ever being able to count on him. He'd learned. 
Lord, I could say right now that I agape you, but I'm telling you, I'm not there yet. I could do what I've always done. Sure, I love you with all my heart and soul. I sacrifice, I'll give anything, I'll die for you. But I've learned, Jesus, that I'm I'm not there yet. I just want to be honest. I just want to be honest. And the second part of that's so beautiful for me is that Jesus understands that and he takes Peter right where he is. If all you have at this moment, Peter, is phileo, I'll take it. I'll take it. Because what I really want from you and what really begins to move the ball down the field with each of us in our area of commitment is honesty. Just be honest. I'm just really not in love with the kingdom. I don't seek first the kingdom of God. I don't make disciples. I don't share my faith with other people. I'm not highly invested in relational environments. I'm not in a small group. And I have little desire to be in a small group. I don't give financially. I think Jesus wants us to be honest. Honest. If phileo is all you've got, then we'll start there. He's not going to leave us there. But let's start there. There's something about living a confessional life, and a confessional life is agreeing with God. He already knows Peter's at phileo. It does no good for Peter to say he's at agape when he's really at phileo. And the same is true for us. So Peter has learned. He stopped making extravagant outlandish statements. But Jesus in his tenderness in our brokenness, in our journey, wherever we are on the journey, he says, I'll meet you right there. Now, we're going to take a journey. We're going to go somewhere. But I'll meet you right where you are. And you know what the truth is? That's the only place he can meet us at. He can't meet us where we're not. And then two great things happen out of love. Love does two great things. One, it gives us responsibility. When you love someone, if you get married, you now have responsibility. You have children, you now have responsibility. You start getting, when you're single, you think, oh, I have so much to do, and then you get married and have a bunch of kids, you go, oh my gosh. You just feel this responsibility. Why? Because that's what love does doesn't have to be heavy in the Christian world, but it's real. Love brings responsibility. It means something. It means that we're going to have to do something. You can't just say it. You don't just tell people, love you, love you, love you, love you. And then do whatever you want to do. It has a responsibility. And secondly, it brings sacrifice. It brings a cross. Let's keep reading. On the third time, do you phileo me? I phileo you. Jesus said, then Peter, feed my sheep. 
responsibility. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you were dressed yourself and you you went where you wanted, and when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter, now he's being called Peter, see the transformation? By which he would glorify God. And then he said to Peter the thing he said to Peter the first time he met him, follow me. Comes right back to the original words. Peter, I want you to know that you are back and you will feed my lambs. And I want you to know you're going to die because you're doing it. I have written in my Bible right here, bad selling point. Because I always felt like Jesus was the worst salesman in the history of salesmen. I mean, do you know a salesman? Salesmen are always, the answer is always yes, right? I can put you, yes, can you give me a better deal? Yes, I can, yes. Jesus is like, I have something for you, and it's not going to go well for you. Bad selling point. But that's what love does. Love brings responsibility. It brings sacrifice. And it's not a burden to sacrifice because Peter, as he went through this and he connected with Jesus in deep and intimate ways, he believed that everything he did was worth the price. Why? Because he fell in love with Jesus and his phileo eventually became agape. And when he hit agape, he and Paul and James and all of them were willing to suffer whatever for the cause of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it was worth it. Why? Because they were in love. In all of our conversations and preaching and sermons and teachings and small groups, we talk a lot about trying to convince people, God loves you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. And of course, it begins with being able to receive God's love. But Jesus flips the script here, and he looks to each one of us, along with Peter, and he asks us, uh, it's not whether I love you, because I love you so much. I love you so much that even though you sinned and rebelled and were against me and and, and ran away from me and fought against me and an enemy of me. I loved you so much in all of your sin that I sent Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect, sinless life. And, and he comes and he dies on a cross to take our sins, to take our punishment, to take, to take it on to him. So he takes our sin and he takes our condemnation on him. And he gives us his righteousness and holiness and forgiveness and purity and love and grace and mercy. What a deal. And then God raises him from the dead three days later to show that he is God and that he does have the power to forgive sin. Oh, there's no question that God loves you. There's no question that Jesus loves us. And in this one place, Jesus flips the question and says, but do you love me? Do you love me? Because if we're going to be people that can be counted on, that will only come when our love for Jesus supersedes everything else in our life. His kingdom, his ministry, 
And then it'll be a joy to be in small groups walking with people in our own spiritual journey. It'll be a joy to take base camp and camp two and camp three. Why? Because I want to move toward, it'll be a joy to give financially and sacrificially. It will be a joy to serve in his ministries. Why? Because I love him. And that love has given me a responsibility that is a joy to me and a sacrifice. I'm going to, I'm going to, change my priorities on the weekends, and I'm not going to go here. I'm not going to go. I'm going to commit. I'm going to, I'm going to change my lifestyle. I'm going to change my priorities out of joy of his love for me. I want to ask you to bow your heads and ask you to answer that question. If you can somehow picture Jesus standing in front of you saying, do you agape love me? What would your answer be? Are you phileo? Is that it? Or is it just storge? I kind of like the family love kind of thing. It's, I'm there because I'm supposed to be and it's family and you have to love your family. Where, where are you on that spectrum of love? And I want to say today, it, it, today's about honesty. We got four more weeks to really evaluate being people who can be counted on. But I, I want you to know, I really believe in all my heart, it's love. And if you phileo Jesus, that's awesome. Join right there. Don't stay right there. He's going to take you somewhere else. But be honest where you are. Be honest that, you know what, I, I don't prioritize my life around the kingdom or around things of the church or around my small group. I'm not even in a small Let's be honest. Let's start there. Tell you, I'm, I'm honest. I don't want to stay here, though. I don't want to stay here. Maybe you need to talk with someone in the Karen prayer room right after the service, or maybe you need to sign up for that grief recovery thing this weekend, but, but Lord Jesus, you know our hearts. You're asking us a question that you already know the answer to. Do you love me? Receive where we are right now and take us somewhere different, better, deeper, more intimate. And I pray and trust over today and these next weeks, you will do that in our lives. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.